You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Peggy Orenstein is the author of Waiting for Daisy and Schoolgirls. Her new book is Cinderella Ate My Daughter, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the New Girly Girl Culture. Thank you for joining me, Peggy. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Peggy, I just really <laughs> love this book. And I have to say, when I first saw it, it really scared me. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that pink cover, I saw the, those sparkles, and I immediately put it at the bottom of a grocery bag, put other books on top of it to keep it from getting me. <laughs> really? Now, see, that's the most, maybe that's because you're a guy, because the response that mostly I get from people is that they were immediately inexplicably attracted to it, and they had to grab it from the shelf. Well, that's good, because it's yeah. a wonderful book, and it's well worth reading. Now, you start this book uh, with your own daughter, Daisy. How old is she now? Seven and a half. Oh, boy. So she's still just a little girl, and she's right in the middle of the years you talk about, isn't mm-hmm. she? Yep. She's a second grader. So you're you're really in the midst of your own experiment. Yeah, I suppose it's my little ex- my little focus group of one that she <laughs> <laughs> that she is required to be. Yeah. Now, you one of the things I think you talk about at the very beginning is uh, before you became a mother, you had written a lot about girls. You'd written mm-hmm. a book called School Girls. You you'd written um, about Daisy's birth. So yeah. this is a, a lot of writing about girls, and that made you kind of nervous to have one, didn't it? It did. You know, I kind of joke uh, in the beginning of the book that um, I, I, I kind of wanted a boy because I was afraid that having written about girls and, and being supposedly an expert on girls' development, what if I couldn't raise the ideal girl? And what was really interesting about that, though, was I kind of did it as an attention grabber to open the book. But as I've traveled around, a number of women have come up to me and said, you know, I thought that too. I thought I was the only person who thought that. And it seems to be a little bit of a thing that um, women are concerned about having a girl and concerned about just the very issues that I'm writing about, about how they're going to help them navigate through issues about body image and sexuality and self-image and all these sorts of things that we worry about that maybe, um, you know, I think if you're a woman, having a daughter brings up a lot that you had sort of buried or put aside or moved on, thought you'd moved on from. So I think it just, it raises a lot of anxiety, even as we so want them. And, you know, they're great. I'm thrilled to have a girl. <laughs> now, Turned uh, out I wanted one all along. I guess so. Now, one of the things that you talk about is that you want your daughters to have, I think, it, it's it's free will. They're, mm. You're battered by you know, messages to consume, and you're battered by other kind of, you know, to consume, to conform. Talk about this kind of creating this feeling of free will for, for your own daughter. Hmm. That's an interesting way to put it. You know, I, I, for me, when I, when I finally had a little girl, um, you know, I just wanted her to grow up and not feel any limits as a woman. And mm-hmm. I suppose, you know, you're right, as a person, too. I wanted her to have as much choice and as much opportunity fulfill, to fulfill her potential as possible. So I didn't want her to feel limited by anything because she was female. I didn't want to think she had to do anything because she was a girl. You know, I just wanted her to have um, as as much possibility as as I could. And, 
you know, then she went to preschool. <laughs> <laughs> and the mighty fall. <laughs> now, one of the th- first things you encountered is the princess culture. Mm-hmm. I and mean, this is a really interesting culture. And it's there's so much money and there's so much uh, stuff in this that I, I was, re- frankly, never aware of. So talk about the princess culture and particularly the Disney princesses, which are who are kind of frightening, I think. <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's something that you wouldn't encounter unless you happen to have a girl and unless you happen to have had a girl in the last approximately 10 years. Because, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I availed myself of my mom's cast-off tiara now and again and swanned around the house and you know, in that and maybe her old heels or something like that and a little scarf wrapped around. But that was a really different thing. And what, and, and there were these movies, there were the Disney movies. So there was, you know, Cinderella, Snow White, even, you know, through uh, Little Mermaid and, and Pocahontas. Th- those were just movies. And they would come out and uh, they would be in the theaters for a few weeks. And there'd be maybe a little bit of merchandise. And then they would go back in the vault. That's how Disney puts it, back in the vault. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't come out again for seven years until a new generation of children was born. Like locusts. Like locusts. And so in that time, you would not have any merchandise or anything related to that movie. So this new head of um, consumer products was hired around 2000. And he, while exploring the brand, went down to an ice show in Phoenix, and he saw all these little girls attending the ice show dressed like princesses. But you wouldn't believe this, Rick. They were using their imaginations. Oh no! Yeah, they it were using fair boating. Yeah, they were using their imaginations and making their own costumes. So homemade this could costumes. homemade costumes. This could not be tolerated. So he went back and he came up with this idea of the Disney princesses, which was to take for the very first time in the history of Disney characters out of the movies and market them all the time separately from the movie. And my my favorite piece of trivia is that so um, Roy Disney. Uh, didn't think this was a good idea at all. He th- said, you cannot do this. It's mixing mythologies. You know, Belle and Cinderella can't have tea together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know, the world implodes. I'm not sure what, th- what happens exactly, but they can't. So the compromise was that um, if you look at any of the Disney, 26,000 Disney princess items, um, the, the characters are all looking off in slightly different directions because they're not supposed to know the other ones are there. And now that you know that, it, it's free, you'll, it'll drive you crazy every time. <laughs> but I think it's also that, you know, princesses don't have girlfriends. Mm-hmm. So they also are looking away from one another. You know, I think there's that subtle message is in there, too. They don't have an equal. They don't. Um, and they don't have friends. I mean, they have animals. They, they never have girlfriends. They have animals and princes. But anyway, so, so they put them out there. And the first year, it was a $300 million business. And by 2009, it was a $4 billion business with um, over 26,000 products. And so as Disney goes, so goes childhood. And that's why over the course of the last 10 years, it seems like little girls have been deluged with this tsunami of all things pink and princess, whether it's the person selling the, you know, the t-shirt on Etsy or Disney and Mattel and everybody in between. Now, one of the things that happened to you was you had tried to keep this away from your little girl, but the power of the stories just reached its hand directly into your house and in the middle of one of your parties, you (laughs) discovered your daughter imitating the dead. Imitating the dead, yeah. Well, I think there's um, there's two elements of this. One is the stuff. 
and, mm -hmm. and that's the, the $4 billion worth of stuff mm -hmm. that's in the stores. And that is very much about, um, you know, it's not about the stories. It's not about the, the traditional tales. It's not even about the rescue by the prince fantasy that people worry about. It's about um, uh, appearance, and it's about defining yourself at an ever earlier age through how you look, through the outside in. You know, what, what was disturbing to me um, when my daughter suddenly came home from preschool and had memorized all the names and gown colors of the Disney princesses when I had never heard of this thing before um, was, was that this was her first encounter with mainstream culture. And the first thing that she was hearing was not you're smart, not you're competent, not you're strong, but that every little girl should want to be the fairest of them all. And that was what concerned me. So, you know, I actually like the traditional fairy tales, a mm -hmm. lot of them. Um, but it did strike me, certainly, that um, what you were alluding to was at my niece's bat mitzvah in Minneapolis. I was looking around for my daughter during the party, and I found her um, surrounded by teenagers laying on her back with her eyes closed, um, waiting for the handsome prince to kiss her. And they were trying to figure out, you know, who the handsome prince she, who she wanted, exactly. <laughs> they were all at her beck and call. Um, so, yeah, she was three then, and she had, you know, she had gotten that. At the age of three. Boy, that's, yeah. that is frightening. Now, one of the things that, that interested me, uh, this perception that you brought, is that what's scary to you and to, to parents is to see the influence of something beyond your family, completely beyond your family, mm -hmm. on your, your daughter. Because, you know, your daughter is spending all her time with you and, and, and maybe with a couple of friends. But just to see that kind of something beyond the family reaching into the family. Yeah, well, it is. Like I said, it's the first time that she hit mainstream culture. And it wasn't, you know, I, I guess... I mean, I was noticing it everywhere. It wasn't just that she came home from preschool with this princess thing. It was the difficulty of buying her anything that wasn't pink and sparkly. It was going to, you know, the I live in Berkeley, so it was going into the um, place where we have breakfast on weekends and the tattooed and pierced waitress giving her pancakes and saying, here's your princess pancakes. And the lady at Long's Drugs giving her, you know, saying, do you want a balloon? I know what color you want and giving her a pink one. And you know, and going to the dentist and having the dentist say, um, do you want to sit in my princess chair so I can sparkle your teeth? And, you know, I just thought, oh, gosh, do you have a princess drill? I mean, <laughs> I just, I didn't remember this, this um, imperative and the sense that girls not just occasionally role-played or dressed up, but they actually became princesses for three solid years. And what I wondered when I went on this journey was whether this was, you know, I didn't know, was this good or bad? And I wondered, was it protective of sexualization from them? I mean, I think that's what parents are hoping, mm -hmm. right? That, it, that it's a protective against early sexualization, or was it priming them for it? And so that was sort of what I was on the road to find out. Now, one of the places you went on the road to is the American Girl Store. And I just think that was such a fascinating story. I mean, the the the, the success story of Rebecca Pleasant. Um, no, that's not her. Pleasant Roland. Pleasant Roland. That's right. Her first name is Pleasant. Oh, Pleasant. Oh, she's all. She started out Pleasant. She started out Pleasant and just went. If you got seven hundred million dollars, you'd be Pleasant too. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, she originally she had she was a history buff and a former teacher and. Um, and an anchor woman, and she um, was shopping for do dolls for her nieces, and everything she saw was either tawdry or 
tawdry. And she, um, she, so she decided to make some, that, and she felt they had nothing to do with actually being a girl. So she made these dolls that she felt um, reflected uh, real girls at different times in history because she wanted to communicate something about American history. And they came with these books. Um, and, and unlike your disposable bucket of Barbies, she wanted them to be precious and an heirloom. At least that's what she says, so that's why she priced them at nearly 100 bucks a crack. Um, <laughs> the books are really, are, are good. I mean, the books have, are, have some interesting things about history, and they have some nice lessons. Um, you know, the, the girls are plucky, and, and there's this interesting aspect to them where, um, although they lived at a time that you know, so the, so the so the books. I don't know. Maybe I should be clear that you know. So there's Kit, who's in the Depression. Mm-hmm. There's Molly, who's in the 1940s. There's the one and only black girl, Addie, who is of course an escaped slave. Um, there's a Nez Pierce Indian. There's one Latina girl. Now they've got a Jewish girl. Um, so there's sort of a ver- they're trying to make a multi-ethnic variety mm-hmm. of. Girls from history. They even have a homeless girl. They had. And, uh, they breathe. Yeah, it's, it didn't work out so well. <laughs> but she was less expensive than the other ones. Ninety five. Yeah, ninety five bucks oh, as opposed well, to one hundred and ten. You know, so. I suppose her. But she had less gear. Like, what are you mm-hmm. going to do for accessories with a homeless girl, right? Yeah, I that guess. was a problem. <laughs> but uh, yeah, because you know the the girls in the books could not possibly afford the dolls that represent them. That's kind of the cosmic irony of American girls. Certainly not the homeless girl. Um, but the girls, you know, espouse kind of good values. But what's interesting is that even though they lived in this, all of them lived in these more repressive times when, you know, girls couldn't, um, women couldn't vote and, and higher, possibly not pursue higher education, depending on the girl, you know, the era and all these things, there's this way that they seem um, oddly more free than girls today because they define themselves entirely through deed and action. Um, whereas, you know, I compare uh, a girl from one of the American Girl Doll Collections, Kit, who's this Depression-era girl, with um, a, a, a girl from another line for that demographic, the, the Bratz girls, and sort of how they define themselves. And Kit, it's all about sort of integrity and action and doing good deeds. And, you know, it's schmaltzy, but it's, it's decent. Mm-hmm. Um, Yasmin is, you know, I like to do good things, and in between, I like to do a spa makeover and read about my read my curl up with a celeb bio. So there's, you know, it's a really different message mm-hmm. um, in a doll that's supposed to represent today, and it's really all about the surface and all about appearance. But even the American girl stores are just like bear traps of consumerism. Yes, they are. Where you will, that's where the you other will side pay of it. dearly for everything that's in there. It's ten dollars yeah. for. Uh, pint-sized teacup and on all the way on up. You betcha. So so I went there and I did not bring my own daughter because I didn't want her to know about American Girl because she <laughs> didn't at that point. And luckily she's not remotely interested in it now. But um, but so I brought a friend whose daughter was 10 and so she was feeling, you know, she said, well, she's not really into it anymore mm-hmm. until we got there. And we left. Of course, I wasn't paying. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't my kid. She left five hundred dollars poorer, and Jeez. she didn't get that much stuff, you know. But it's just somehow it like got. And she was just saying, "I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know why I'm doing this." And as I was watching her slap down her credit card, and you know, she's saying, "My husband, he's going to kill me. I can't believe I'm doing this." I was looking out the window at Saks Fifth Avenue, which is across the street, and they had these oscillating um, discs in the window that said, "Bye, bye, 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 bye." And I thought, 
gosh, at least they're more honest over there, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what this is about. And so there's this way that even American Girl, which espouses these good values, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, don't, American, don't get your daughter an American Girl doll, they're evil, because, you know, they do, co compared to the competition, I get it. You they know? have some merit. They have some merit. Um, their teeth are creepy, but they have some <laughs> merit. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it, it, it does reinforce this idea of consumerism because there's always more, 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 and that um, the essential bond between mothers and daughters is shopping. And mm -hmm. both um, American Girl and the Disney Princesses and all of that pink and pretty stuff for little girls is about the selling of innocence. And, you know, and, and that's, and, and what happens, you know, if you buy into the idea of the selling of innocence, the question is, what happens? What happens to your daughter? What happens to you? What happens next? Well, I think that uh, this concept of defining def self-definition from the outside in, yeah. it's really an interesting uh, perception of this. And that's one of the things I think your book does really well, is you explain some of these perceptions that we have. And one, the idea that, if you look good, you feel good. If you look good, you are good. <laughs> yes. Right? And that's not just for little girls, is it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think no. what's, what's new about that is that it's extending younger. And there used to be sort of a protective time in a child's life before they were heavily marketed to and told that this is what they were supposed to be. And if you and I were sitting here, and maybe we were, I can't recall. I think I was sitting actually in this studio, I'm not, probably not with you, 10 or 15 years ago when Schoolgirls came out, my first book. And I was talking about, and we were talking about, um, how these uh, issues affected girls who were 12 and 13 year old because 13 years old because it felt that um, that was so young mm -hmm. for girls to be contending with uh, these sort of sexualized ideas of femininity and body image issues and all of these things. And there was some real concern about that. And here we are 15 years later, and that seems old hat. And now what we're talking about is, you know, um, lipstick and nail polish, you know, the, the, the percentage of, of six-year-olds who wear, say they regularly wear lipstick and lip gloss is 43%. And the That's shocking. Yeah, the percentage of eight to 12-year-olds that um, wears eyeliner, wear eyeliner, uh, and or mascara doubled between 2008 and 2010. So there's this way that the pressure to define yourself from the outside in and to um, see yourself and judge yourself as you think others see and judge you and objectify yourself is getting more intense and younger, even as girls are doing so much better in the public realm. And this is a phenomenon you call K-G-O-Y? Well, I don't call it that, but that's what it's called, yeah. <laughs> Kids getting older, younger. Kids getting older, younger. It's a marketing construct, the idea that you pitch products to um, older children and then younger children trying to be like their older brothers and sisters uh, wanting to be cool, you know, reach up and the demographic drifts down and the older children flee and it's left to the younger kids. So if you take like Barbie, Barbie was originally for nine to 12 year old girls. Now your daughter's done with Barbie by the time she's six and has moved on to something, you know, cooler. And for, for girls, cool is usually defined as hot. So they're reaching up for something that is, you know, hot or hot-esque or, or um, for little girls, marketers tend to use the word sassy. Mm -hmm. um, which is like sexy with training wheels. Um, <laughs> or, or, you know, I think of it as girls power with a Z. Mm -hmm. When you see girls, girls power with a Z, um, girl power is self-confidence and girls power is self-absorption. Uh -huh. Interesting so, distinction. 
Well, yeah. I mean, my Daisy. I'll, I'll get back to this. The, I want to get back to the sexuality and sexualization piece. But mm-hmm. Daisy got. I think this is where you're. You know, one of the steps um, that's next from princess because, you know, you outgrow the princess phase. But what do you grow into? What is what comes next? And there's this way that it turns into a diva thing. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's the brat dolls or um, Daisy got for her seventh birthday, so th- last year, um, a make your own messenger bag kit, and all over it said, you know it's all about you, it's all about you, which was the first thing she kind of looked at and went, what's that, you know, mom, why are they saying that? That's kind of braggy, um, <laughs> which is like the worst thing you can be at seven, right? And and then she, the, it had all these iron-on transfers that were like hearts and flowers and, you know, that sort of stars. And then it had iron-on transfers that said um, spoiled brat and pampered princess. And she said, you know, mom, why do they want you to put that on your purse? <laughs> It's like, I don't know, honey, why don't we throw those ones away? Um, <laughs> but but there was this way that girl power has, you know, those ideas in the 1990s of, of independence and self-determination. Um, now have been distorted so that the way that you express power as a girl is through um, narcissism and materialism. So it's re- So confidence is writing spoiled on your purse. So mm. that's kind of where that tas- takes the first twist, um, where all that pink and pretty goes. You know, one of the things that this book points out is how the just the perceptions of age ranges are the creation of marketing uh, mm-hmm. categories. I mean, that there never used to be something called toddlers. They were right. just invented so that there was another age group. So talk about the the ever finer slicing and dicing of the ages in this group of girls you're talking about. We have right. toddlers, and then we have tweens, tweens which is which new. Is new and, and really applied to girls. I mean, there mm-hmm. really are not so much boy tweens. No. Toddler, it's really, I mean, I never would have guessed this. Toddler was a marketing construct. It was invented in 1930, and it was uh, invented by um, retailers because they real because it used to be you know that all boys and all girls wore white dresses and then you know around three years old boys were breached and mm-hmm. they started wearing pants so babies all kind of wore the same thing so everything was all just grouped together and they realized that if they treated if they created this what they called the third stepping so- stone between infants and kids wear um, and and further segmented between boys and girls that it was particularly actually at that time for the parents of boys because they bought more if boys were separated out from girls. The parents of girls were not buying more necessarily, but parents of boys were. Sure, because now there were pants. Now there were pants. Now they had to make them into boys. Mm-hmm. So there was this whole new thing. So that was where that started. And and that seems so improbable that only after that did it become like a whole developmental idea and sure. construct. So then when you think about tween, though, tween was also just totally a marketing construct developed in the mid-1980s and it has come to have this whole developmental profile and, what, and, and what's really tween is really slippery I mean toddler you kind of get mm-hmm. right more or less tween I've seen it used for six-year-olds um, they, you really know, that yeah. seems incredibly young to somebody me. asked me the other day if I consider my daughter a tween because she's seven and a half and I just went no I consider her a child I don't want her to you know tween has this whole different thing but um uh, at age seven, Bonnie Bell says it starts because that's when girls become um, adept at using a lip gloss wand. And it goes all the way up to, depending on who's talking, around 12. But totally a marketing construct, and now 
a developmental phase. Now, let's talk about uh, this kind of uh, pre-sexualization, because I think that's one of the, the, the big fear of parents, and it's an understandable fear. Yeah. So um, talk about this. One of the things that's very interesting is what you were referring to earlier. The princesses can go kind of either way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the, the really interesting aspects of this book, is that it you draw our attention to the fact that it just depends on your perception as a parent and as your child and then really in the individual circumstances as to where this is coming from, where the, what side of the line you're coming down on. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And, and, you know, I think that, first of all, it's really important to define your terms. So when we're talking about sexualization, we're not obviously talking about kids and, you know, acting sexually per se. Um, but what that is is sort of a performance of sexuality mm-hmm. and and judging yourself as you think others um, as you think you appear to others with that appearance being narrowly constructed as being pretty and sexy in a very specific way mm-hmm. and it and what I find useful as a parent when I'm looking at the culture is to um, distinguish between sexuality and sexualization by saying okay sexuality is what you want your daughter to be developing mm-hmm. over the course of time in a developmentally appropriate way um, that's that's internal that's connected that's about understanding her own desire understanding her own responses that connects her to um, intimacy to reciprocity to her own you know self-determination and ability to say ye- um, yes when she wants to and no when she needs to sexualization that's is inside out inside out is yes sex- and sexualization is um, valuing being desirable mm-hmm. over your own desire. And so it's outside in. It's, it's acting to get validation from other people for how you look. And it's the one, it, that's what tells you how you look is how you feel. Um, and when I talked to um, researchers on girls' sexuality, uh, what I would hear is um, that increasingly what they're seeing is that when they ask girls how an experience of arousal felt, that the response they get is how they think they looked, and that they have to tell girls that looking good is not a feeling. And, and I think that that is sort of at the heart of this, that mm-hmm. as we said earlier, that this idea that how you look is who you are, and that identity, sexuality, femininity become, this, that become these performances um, that you're putting on for others in this very image-conscious culture and though that's linked, sexualiz- early sexualization or just generally sexualization of girls is linked very strongly to the kinds of things that we worry about with girls, negative body image, eating disorders, um, very strongly linked to depression, and obviously to poor sexual choices. So, it, you know, it, it, a lot really is at stake with this. Now, one of the things that I think you, you do very well in this book, you do... I give a really interesting perception of of gender and and for one thing that you point out gender is a marketing tool um in terms of hyper segmentation of gender yeah. yeah well yeah i mean you know um uh the more what what has become clear to marketers particularly with kids is that the more you um chop up the market mm-hmm. the bigger your sales so any times that they can um they can divide into girls and boys, either amplify or magnify gender difference or invent it where it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have like the one pink Tinker Toy set in the entire store or the one <laughs> pink Lego set, which, you know, it's hard. Like, on one hand, you could say, okay, well, you know, maybe that's meeting girls where they're at and letting them, you know, play with Legos that they might not otherwise play with. Or 
maybe it's telling them that this is the only consolation prize they get in this whole store. And I always think about um, this time when I took Daisy to go on a scooter ride with her friend when I was driving them to the park. And they were sitting in the back seat, and I was eavesdropping. And the other little girl um, had a, a pink scooter and a pink helmet, and Daisy had a silver scooter and a fire-breathing dragon helmet. And the little girl said to Daisy, why isn't your helmet pink? It's not a girl's helmet. And she said, you know, she kind of furrowed around and went, well, it's for girls or for boys. And the other little girl just kind of like looked like, hmm. And in that little exchange, I just thought there was a lot about, you know, the expectation of that girls have, the potential exclusion if you don't toe the line, and just this sort of ever-narrowing pink box that defines girlhood through you know, princess dresses and spa makeover, princess dresses at three and spa makeovers at five and, um, I don't know, you know, America's top model at eight and... Pantone keep, 219. Keeping up with the Kardashians. I don't know, you know, <laughs> this, but this, this constant drumbeat that, um, that can be hard as a parent to, to recognize. It's hard to recognize the trajectory um, until you're pretty well along it. Now, you talked to a woman, uh, Lisa Elliott, mm -hmm. Pink Brain, Blue Brain. Yeah, marvelous and, book. Yeah, it's a, and yeah. she came up with some very interesting conclusions. Uh, and one of the things that's, that we as parents, it's hard to, for us to really understand is that our very small children don't have the same kind of understandings of yeah. things that we do. So it's, just as they might not understand that somebody's dead, that they're right. not going to come back, they might not really understand that they couldn't just change sex yeah. just spontaneously. Gender impermanence. Yeah, they don't really get that until they're about six. The death thing is actually a great metaphor because I always, uh, or analogy, I, I, unfortunately, last year, the, the head of Daisy's school died, mm -hmm. and uh, um, the kids believed she was haunting, so she was a first grader then, and they believed she was haunting one of the bathrooms. And the wow. teachers sat them down and had this big, you know, touchy-feely talk about how this wasn't true and <laughs> notified the parents. And, all this. and she came home, and a couple days later I said, so Daisy, you know, did you guys talk about, you know, what happened with Janet in the bathroom and, you know, there's no ghosts and everything? And she said, yeah, they all told us she was dead and she's not coming back and that there's she's not in the bathroom. But we all know she really is. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, the, and, and sex is similar, that girls and boys do not understand um, when they're in preschool, and even up to about age six, that the sex they're born with is permanent, and they think they could grow up to be either a mommy or a daddy. And the whole anatomy business, you know, is a little hazy. Um, so what makes you a girl is barrettes. Or wearing a dress. And that's why people say, I was, you know, going along, raising my daughter, and all this, you know, totally neutral, totally neutral. And all of a sudden, you know, she insisted on wearing a dress and threw a tantrum when I put her in pants. Well, that's why. They, you know, she thinks she's going to turn into a boy. Mm -hmm. So they gravitate towards whatever is the most extreme in the culture that, that shouts girl or boy. So when I was little, maybe when you were little, it was more like, you know, for girls, it was baby dolls or carriages or Susie Homemaker irons or Easy Bake Ovens, stuff like that, mm -hmm. domestic stuff. Now it's pink and princess and makeup. So, you know, where we went through our little mommy stage, you know, so, so, so to me, what I learned from that was that it isn't enough in combating um, some of these trends to try to um, go neutral. I mean, of course, you should give your, you know, 
daughter or your son blocks or crayons or you know whatever mm-hmm. all you know the whole range of gamut of toys but you you need to find something that she can cling to and cel- that celebrates her as a girl and gives her an idea of femininity um, that's a little different that isn't always and persistently hooked to um, appearance and play sexiness. Well, that's such an interesting perception. Now, you um, tell us a little bit about the, the behemoth, um, a Barbie, and <laughs> who's kind of looms like this thing. Now, you mentioned, you just throw this away uh, in there, and uh, you say Barbie was uh, based on, on a German sex toy. I knew that's what you were going to say. German sex toy, <laughs> yes. Yes, she was. Really? Yeah. And she has parents, too. She's supposed to be a teenager. That doesn't quite work Yeah, anymore. that's one of the things I think that's interesting, that you point out that Barbie really lives in her kind of, she's... She, in her Barbie world. In her Barbie world. I mean, there's no, you don't think of any, you don't think of her parents, you don't think no. of any relatives. You can barely get Ken in there. Right. Well, they're back together now, apparently. Oh, are they? Yeah. Um, I have a Google alert <laughs> on Barbie, which means I get a lot about barbecuing in Australia. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's Barbie. I mean, now Barbie seems so quaint compared to what's out there. But um, I don't think you can have grown up female in the last 50 years without having some relationship to Barbie, either love or, you know, you cannot be, like, neutral on Barbie. Everybody mm-hmm. has their Barbie um thing. But what's interesting historically about Barbie is that when she came in, she was kind of seen as a rebel. Mm -hmm. So she was introduced in 1959. And, you know, at that time, baby boomers' moms were pretty locked into domestic life. And they were starting to feel, you know, um, uh, the problem that has no name was sort of, was sort of laid over them like a blanket. Mm -hmm. And so they were seeing their moms as being sort of unhappy um, and stuck and here was this doll that was glamorous and had cl- careers and she was elegant and she could do what she wanted and she had a dream house. And, you know, like, there's no mom with ungrat- three ungrateful children Barbie. So, you <laughs> know? not, no. So she was in this weird, she was sort of like the first I am woman, see me shop feminist. Mm-hmm. So she had this kind of independence that little girls looked up to and admired, but her independence was just firmly... Um, fused with continual consumerism. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting kind of liberation. Um, But it was, in its weird way, a kind of liberation, even as she reinforced so much about conventional conventional femininity. So she's really an interesting character, that Barbie. And I think that's why, um, as an icon, you know, somebody just told me the other night they were at a Lady Gaga concert, and uh, Lady Gaga bites the heads off Barbies. And I thought, you know, there's a reason for that. Barbie has a very <laughs> is a very potent icon. Girls, you know, there was a study. I don't know who funds these studies. There was a study in um, England done at the University of ba- ba- Bath, Bath on, um, that showed that girls like to torture and mutilate their Barbies as much as they like to play with them. And parents were all sort of hand-wringing about that. And I thought, oh, my God, did you never have one? That is, was one of the joys of Barbie, was like drowning her in the bathtub or snipping off all her hair. or You know, for whatever reason, Barbie is a vector of a lot of things. Now, uh, one of the things, though, that's interesting just about dolls in general, and there, this kind of comes up in your when you talk about the online aspect yeah. of, of of children's lives today is that dolls actually require a lot of imagination. I mean, it's such a leap to project yourself into that doll, and it's not 
so different, I think, and I think in a way from reading. No, I think you're right. And I think that that kind of that it that in order to engage with a doll like that, um, it, whether you're cutting its hair off or marching it down the street to shop, right? Um, it still requires a real leap of the imagination. It does. It does. And and girls are the the um, doll sales are dropping. They're just plummeting. Um, they they've gone down. I think I, I can't remember now if I say twenty or twenty five percent in the last couple of years as girls play with online dolls. And the thing with online dolls is that they've got a script and it's a closed system. So you do not use your imagination. You point and you click. And and what one little girl said um, when interviewed about this trend of, of going online is that she didn't like playing with real world dolls because she didn't think she was very good at making things up and she didn't like to have to do it. It was a nine-year-old, I think. And, you know, you hear that and you just think, <laughs> and that's not even about girls. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really about, I mean, the doll part is, but but I think, you know, this notion, I, I just didn't, I guess when I became a parent, I didn't anticipate how much of my job was going to be about protecting my child's childhood mm-hmm. and in particular protecting her imagination um, from sort of becoming a land grab. And, and that takes um, a lot of intentionality and consciousness as a parent. I mean, it just, it's, I, I, I honestly think it is one of the biggest jobs for a new parent today in a way that is just unprecedented. And, you know, just the difference between um, a five-channel black-and-white TV and a satellite dish, you know, that's the world we live in. Well, I, it's interesting. God, God, I wish we could live in Sweden. I know. I mean, that makes it they don't we all? Yeah, I couldn't. I can't market to anybody under twelve. Is it? It is. You you cannot market to children under twelve, and m- many um, countries have regulations about uh, about marketing to kids in um, a number of countries. I'm trying to remember in in Europe, you can't um, run children's advertising before uh, either eight or ten at night. Um, which presumes that the child is asleep mm-hmm. and the marketing then is going towards the parents, not towards the child. Uh, we, on the other hand, um, have very minimal, very minimal regulations. It was largely children's advertising was entirely deregulated under Reagan. Mm-hmm. And it was okay then if on Saturday morning to run the same cartoon back to back five times in a row. And kids can't tell the difference. You know, a, a child under um, six can't tell the difference between a program and an ad, although in a way that's an irrelevant distinction now because online there is no difference, right? It's embedded marketing is so sure, ubiquitous that I can't tell the difference between you know a program and an ad. Um, but until they're eight, kids don't fully understand that ads are meant to sell you something. So you know that's a very vulnerable market. It's it's a market that you know it's it's predatory to mark to small mm-hmm. market to small children. Um, I think. Now, one of the things you talk it about... It's me on my radical high horse. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, you know. I don't disagree. Yeah. I, and I think you talk that about how the American Psychological Association says that these kind of cultural shifts and these kind of... the This culture of consumerism and this outside-in perception that Disney princess culture, uh, the the brat stalls, all this stuff is actually damaging to, to the development uh, of the girls, especially. Well, yeah, it really is. I mean, that's, you know, it, it, those, that report um, was from 2006, and it was a compendium of all the studies on girls and sexualization and body image and such, or, or maybe not all of them, but many important studies, and um, showed pretty clearly that uh, early sexualization um, creates this vulnerability to a number of maladies, including um, body image issues, and 
uh, poor sexual choices and depression, and that it even can affect um, girls' ambitions. And, you know, some of the studies are so... I mean, I do sometimes wonder who studies them because they seem so <laughs> wacky, you know. But, but, um, but part of this is about stereotype vulnerability, and, mm-hmm. and this is something that's um, true for women of all ethnicities and men of color. Uh, that when told, for instance, that um, uh, uh, your group doesn't do as well on this test, they tend not to do as well as it on the test. You know, there, there's there's a vulnerability that when a stereotype is enacted you respond to it, that when you are um, confronted with, the more you're confronted with the stereotype, the more you embrace it. So there's a study that my favorite wacky study is uh, they divided um, college-age men and college-age women into four groups, so two groups of men, two groups of women, and put them in dressing rooms in a store. And the men, they were all, one group of men and one group of women were asked to try on a sweater, and one group of men and one group of women were asked to try on a bathing suit. And then they were all asked to take a math test. <laughs> this is a great right? thing, yes. And, uh, and so with the men, um, there was no difference in their results. The, mm-hmm. the men in the bathing suits, the men in the sweaters, exact same scores. But wearing a bathing suit for a woman depressed their performance. So they did, more, they did less well on the test. And it, you know, it, it showed that um, whether it's consciousness of your body or you know, or dis- is distracting for for young women, or um, whether it kicked in a stereotype vulnerability. Whatever the reason, whether women maybe get colder quicker, I don't know. But um, <laughs> you know, it, it, that consciousness of your body basically uh, took up brain space and affected your performance academically. And and studies like that, there's you know, that wasn't the only one. Um, those studies are done all the time that show that the more little girls or older girls are exposed to um, feminine stereotypes that portray women as uh, uh, that are based on appearance or body consciousness or you know other weakness or any of those sorts of classic notions of femininity, um, the more vulnerable they become and the you know their their performance on things drops. Well, you talk about uh, body image in, in here, and um, you you one of the things that you talk about. <laughs> that's kind of funny this phrase you said is that at one point you were looking forward to just getting old so you could just let it all go oh yeah man <laughs> just, just let everything yeah. go to hell and have it. Stay but there's um, a paradox too that getting older the kid the yeah, children see are if getting, you can say this yes, right <laughs> children are getting older younger and staying younger older <laughs> adults are staying younger older kids yeah. are getting older younger adults are staying younger older so it's possible that our kids are going to um be the same be age as older us. than us at some point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. or we'll all meet at twenty one or something we'll like that. But but it is salient because uh-huh. you know it, it is. So if you're if you're really you want your daughter, you know to 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 believe that her internal self is her most important self, but we older women are chasing after youth for really good reasons. I mean, it's not like it's it's irrelevant. You know, you, it, it is very hard to be a woman in this culture and show your age. Mm-hmm. Um, you become marginalized. It's hard in the workplace. Uh, it's hard in your romantic life. I mean, it's not easy. So we haven't really solved that problem of how we age gracefully. But in the meantime, you've got a lot of women running around, you know, um, embalming themselves with Botox and fillers and, um, you know, working out like mad things at the gym, not to be healthy, but to be to try to get the physique of a 21-year-old and wearing their daughter's clothes and, you know, 
I look like my daughter's sister rather than you know her daughter and and that you know we're all caught in this cycle of of and that's you know that's a losing battle that's mm. you're, you're not going to win that one no. over the long haul um so i mean joan rivers is out there um <laughs> so you know it's it's it, but it's it's really tough it's 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 again i look back to the fairy tales and i think about um uh snow white mm-hmm. and and the stepmother you know looking in the mirror and saying am i the fairest of them all you know you know that stepmother would be abusing Botox if she lived today, right? <laughs> to try sure, to keep, fa- you know, <laughs> fairer than Cinderella. But I think, again, the fairy tales have something to teach us about about that lesson. Well, one of the things you you have write very persuasively and interestingly about the, the importance of, of fairy tales mm-hmm. as they are told ori- originally, not as they are... Traditionally. Traditionally. Originally, you're going to get people writing in. <laughs> <laughs> then you got to go back to the 8th century, so let's just say traditional. It's traditionally, yeah. as they're told traditionally, as opposed yeah. to the, the latest repackaging of them. So talk about the, the power of those original ter- fairy tales and why they're still, those stories still yeah. matter. I mean, it's, it's really a shame that Disney has so um, dominated and, and, you know, conquered the fairy tale that that's what we think they are. Um, because the the traditional tales are fabulous, and there and there are many that are about um, you know spunky, self determining girls who act in their own who are actors in their own fate. It's not about princes rescuing girls at all. Um, Rapunzel, no, you know they rescue one another. There's no prince rescuing Rapunzel, and Cinderella. Five hundred I mean, versions, you say? Yeah, the Cinderella goes back to ninth century China. Um, and, and there are zillions of versions of Cinderella. Some of them are wonderful. Some of them are weird. You know, so there's a flower pot stuck on one Cinderella's head. And, you know, there's various kinds of cultural Cinderellas. But I like the Grimm Cinderella, who's mm-hmm. called Ashenputo, um, Ash Girl. Um, but we'll call her Cinderella because you know, we're used to that. But, you know, the, the Grimm's amped up the gore in the fairy tales mm-hmm. when they codify them. The fairy tales were sort of like the porn of their day, mm-hmm. uh, and they were all very bawdy, and there was a lot of incest, and there was a lot of premarital sex, and Rapunzel was pregnant with twins um, by the time she got out of that uh, tower, as was Sleeping Beauty when she woke up. <laughs> so, you know, they, they were not quite as clean as, as we knew them to be. And so they, the Grimm's um, cut out the sex, and they amped up the violence because they believed that violence would teach children... Um, morality. So that's why they're so incredibly gory in the Grimm's version. Um, but what I love about Cinderella uh, was that um, Cinder- Cinderella in the story plants a, a hazel twig on her mother's grave and um, waters it with her tears. And the tree grows and these doves perch on it. And it's her relationship to the tree that's the central relationship in the book, in the story. Um, So there's no fairy godmother. There's no pumpkin. There's none of that stuff. Um, The tree gives her the wherewithal to go to the ball. And she goes on her own. and, um, and, And she's really quite an active character. But to me, it's about the ways that um, a mother's love transcends death and becomes this spiritual guide for her daughter and helps her safely um, walk the road to the transition from girl to woman. And what I take from that is that we need to bring back the hazel branch, 
you know, and that we as you need to be the we need to be tree. the hazel branches, whether we're mothers or fathers or grandparents or you know advocates or teachers of girls. We need to be that sheltering tree that that guides girls and 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 girds them so that they'll be able to make their own good decisions ultimately, um, and and find their own real and true happily ever afters. Now you talk about uh, the TV girls. Yeah, the <laughs> Disney girl, the Disney prin- the other Disney princesses, the, well, the flesh no. and blood blood ones. The the, the yes, uh, Hazel, uh, uh, Raven, and uh, the, the not so felicitous ones. Oh, Hannah, Hannah, Hannah you Montana. mean Hannah? Yes. So talk, tell us about how what these girls tell us about. Well, you know, I think their transition. So that's another thing you're supposed to go as a girl from the Disney princesses to the Disney Channel to the flesh and blood princesses, mm-hmm. whoever the girl of the moment is. You know, Demi Lovato, who just got out of rehab for um, <laughs> eating disorder, or you know, whoever it is. Um, and and Hannah Montana was obviously the biggest one. She Miley's worth a billion dollars now. Miley Cyrus, who played Hannah Montana, and um, so she. So what's interesting is that they market them initially as totally wholesome role models, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're they wear um, those true love weights rings that that um, you know they're going to be virgins till they're married. And they uh, Miley used to say things like, "I um, choose clothes that moms will approve of and girls will love." And I look way young, and I want to stay that way. And then you know, whammo! Three months later, she was dancing on a pole. And there's this way that I think you cannot use wholesomeness as a marketing gimmick without using what comes after as a marketing gimmick. And and it's really the fetishizing of the wholesomeness that's that what is... That's so, such an interesting yeah, phrase. Yeah, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what girls see is the fetishizing of wholesomeness and that then to get out of that, you that self-objectification becomes a feminine rite of passage. And that's what they really learn from the, those Disney girls. And now, you know, I just saw a girl the other day who came up to me in a reading because I was reading that section of the book and I say, you know... Um, I, I talk about how it wasn't, you know, any of the things Miley did. It's not the hooker heels. It's not the stripper squad. It's not the Vanity Fair photos. It's the fetishizing of wholesomeness and that these girls don't have much of a choice in the way that they're portrayed and then portray themselves. And it's not until they become actors in it themselves that um, that parents get riled up. And and I was saying, you know, so Miley or Lindsay or Brittany or, you know, mark my words, someday Selena Gomez. And this girl, you know, was like, Selena will never do that. Selena's wonderful. And I was saying, well, you know, just historically, maybe she won't. But, you know, that's not the pattern. And, um, you know, and she totally bought into She's like, well, I hate Hannah Montana. You're right about her, about Miley Cyrus. And I thought, of course you hate her. You're supposed to hate her now. You loved her three years ago, though, and you and you love Selena now, and you're going to hate her in a couple of years because she's going to do the flip, and you're going to be told that now she's bad, and the reason she's bad is because she appears to be acting sexually, but that's not really what she's doing. She's self-objectifying, and that's what you should be upset about, not that you know that she's a teenage girl who's expressing sexuality. Now you do find hope in an unlikely place, uh, the punk. Rockers, the Riot Girls. Oh. You kind of like them, don't you? You think that's unlikely? I loved them. I mean, I don't think they're, they're appropriate for seven-year-olds because, you know. They're Riot Girls. Well, you can't, they reappropriate the C word, and, you know, I don't want my, seven, my seven-year-old using that word. I won't say it on the radio and get your license revoked. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's just say it's like, you know, that thing you do with a bat when you hit it short, you bunt. Um, but... Uh, they had great, you know, they they were very radical. The Riot Girls. They were about. I mean, it's. I, they were the first ones to use the phrase "girl power." Mm-hmm. They they said "girl," you know, "g r r r r power," 
but you know it was quickly grabbed up and stripped of its subversiveness um, by the Spice Girls, and that became then girl power was you know what uh, was something courage and the and wonder bra I can't remember what the friends maybe friends yeah. courage and wonder bra something like that um, so it became this really fast that what I Th- this idea of girls' power with a Z, mm-hmm. which is the consumer girl power, that is the freedom, you know, the, the power to shop. Um, and while the Spice Girls, you know, I liked seeing girls jumping up and down and cheering for girls on stage instead of like the latest Backstreet Boy or Justin Bieber, and that was sort of cool. But, you know, they, they and, and some of what they sang about was fun and neat, but they were ultimately just a, a tool to sell more yes, Spice Girls stuff. They were a tool to sell more Spice Girls stuff. And they and they were like the you know, they were part of that Barbie thing, the mm-hmm. independence as independence to shop. And plus, you know, I mean they only modeled some you know, there, there where was bi curious spice, where was, you know, um <laughs> Nerdy chubby spice, spice yeah. you know, whatever. But the the Spice Girls still conformed to let's just say some conventional ideals. But maybe that was too much to ask of them. But basically you know, their girl power meant little more than a shrunken pink T-shirt with a flower that says girl power on it and means, you know, nothing more than the power to go to the mall and go to either Claire's or Victoria's Secret. Now, um, uh, I do like the way that you end the book with this uh, concept of this uh, of parents and mothers as being a protective voice, yeah. a voice to guide um girls to grow from the inside out. I think that this, you know, is the, is the kind of the way you battle the monster. There's a monster mm-hmm. in this book, which is consumerism. Yeah. And it's aimed at Consumers, girls. Consumer femininity. femininity. Yeah. It's, it's aimed at girls from every, every, from the earliest age on. Yeah. Now, even earlier, when I wrote in the book, it started at three, but now Disney has this new campaign. Do you know about this? To go into, um, they've started something based on the success of the Disney princesses, mm-hmm. modeled on that, and the $4 billion a year industry that it has become. They've started Disney Baby, and they are going into 600 maternity wards in the country, into new mother's rooms right after they've given birth, and giving them a free Disney-branded onesie if um, they will sign up for the Disney Baby email. And what um, they said was they're using that as a beachhead, that was the word they used, um, for, to develop this multi-billion dollar industry where they will slap you know, Disney princesses and Simba the Lion and whoever onto, um, they'll find 26,000 baby items. So that because they realized that there was this gap in their um, uh, domination of childhood and that they had not addressed zero to three-year-olds and that kids were not, families were not consuming the brand until they were, their kids were three. And one of the things that Andy Mooney, who's the head of consumer licensing, said was, if we can get a new mother, an expectant mother, to think about her first theme park visit while her baby is still in the womb, we have hit a home run. And I thought, geez, can't you have 12 hours of magic with your child without the magic kingdom butting in? I mean, you know, it was, it's really, it is the, it's the final corral, you know, the, the consumer dominance of every age group. And while that's true for girls and boys, you know, it's, it's even more true of girls. And, and I'm writing about girls. I mean, there, there's a great book for, about boys called Packaging Boyhood um, that I'd recommend for, for parents of sons. Um, but yeah, that, so, so I think it is um, incumbent on us. I want, you know, and I, and I really believe, I mean, I just said kids weren't consuming 
Disney till they were three. And the the words that we use when we talk about culture are the same words we use when we talk about food. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, when you look and and so I, I think about the food movement um, and the ways like how fringy it was 10 years ago. That's really an interesting analogy. That's a great analogy. Yeah, it's the analogy that gives me hope. 10 years mm-hmm. ago, who knew what trans fat was, right? Who cared if your chicken was in a cage before you ate it, right? I mean, nobody knew, nobody cared. But really, because of a couple of books that raised awareness, because of Fast Food Nation, because of Omnivore's Dilemma, you know, not everybody, not everywhere, but there has been significant change in a number of communities. Thank you for joining me, Peggy. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.